you're a Christian, if you have repented of your sins and believed in Jesus Christ and Lord and Savior, it's because God loved you with a great love. And by the way, He still does. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom continues his current series with part 11 of This Is Your Life. We're looking at the heart of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. In today's program, Tom will look at what God does in salvation, specifically how He changes the life of you, the individual. If you are in Christ, you're no longer the same person you were before He saved you. In Ephesians 2, we get a description of the dramatic change God has produced in your heart. It's how He brings all believers out of spiritual death into life. It's how He rescues us and is entirely the work of God from beginning to end. But what exactly does God do in salvation? Let's find out right now on The Word Unleashed. Well, if you haven't noticed, we find ourselves in the middle of a country awash in politics. Turn on the television, pick up the newspaper, drive down the street and see the barrage of signs and billboards announcing all the candidates uh, who stand for you to choose. So I thought in light of that fact, in light of the fact that we cannot ignore that reality, that today I would do something a little different and just talk about who you should vote for for president. <laughs> just kidding. Just wanted to see if you were awake, if I had your attention. Seriously, however, with the campaign for the presidency, we've all heard a lot of talk about change and the need for change. And as I thought about that, and I thought about the passage that we come to today, I, I realized that I think the concept of change resonates with people because there is often a sense in the heart of man that things are not the way they ought to be. It seems that really nothing is ultimately the way it ought to be. And therefore, there is a deep-seated human desire for meaningful, lasting change at every level. Whether you're talking about the government, or whether you think that you need to see a change in others. We look around, the people around us, and we see the need for change. It reminds me this week, I read the story of a man from the mountains of Tennessee who found himself in a large city standing in front of an elevator. And it was the first time that he'd ever seen an elevator, and he really wasn't quite sure what it was supposed to do. So he stood there and watched with some degree of fascination as this older woman hobbled onto the elevator and the doors closed. And a couple of minutes later, as he stood there and watched, the doors opened again, and to his amazement, a young, attractive woman exited the elevator. <laughs> so this man of the mountains leaned over and quietly whispered to his youngest son, Billy, go get your mother. We see the need for change in others. But we not only see the need for change in others, many people, if they're honest with themselves, eventually come to see the need for change in themselves. We realize that we are clearly not what God intended human beings to be. 
Life is not the way it ought to be. We are not the way we should be. But then comes the frightening realization that we do not have the capacity to change ourselves. We do not have the capacity to change ourselves at the deepest levels of our heart. We can change our appearance. We can change some of our habits. We can change some of the externals. But what we can't do is change ourselves where it matters most at the level of the heart. We can't to use the image Jesus used with Nicodemus and Nicodemus back to Christ, we cannot go back into our mother's wombs and start all over again. And even if we could, we have this sort of suspicion that we would make the same mess all over again. That is when God steps in. And He does what we could never do He changes us, and He changes us not at the external, exterior level, but He changes us at the deepest levels of our hearts. Paul describes that dramatic change that has happened to some of us who sit here in this room this morning in Ephesians chapter 2. Let me read this passage again for you as we move ahead today into the second section. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus." For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. That wonderful passage describes the dramatic change that God has produced in the hearts of every Christian. It's how He brought us out of spiritual death into life. It's how He rescued us. And it was entirely the work of God from beginning to end. Paul develops and explains this sort of dramatic change that has occurred in our lives in three very simple movements or expressions as he goes through this passage. We looked at great length at the first three verses where we learned what we were. Paul takes us back and reminds us of how desperate our real condition and situation was. Last week, we began to look at the second great part of this paragraph in verses 4 through 6, what God did. What God did. And this second section begins with what John Stott calls a mighty adversative. But God. Last week, we took the time, sort of paused in our study of this great chapter to look at the powerful lessons contained in those two little words, but God. Today, however, we come to the heart of this paragraph. We come to what God did in our salvation. 
But before Paul gets to the main verbs that mark out the change God has produced in us, he first explains the catalysts. The catalysts. In chemistry, a catalyst is a substance that initiates or accelerates a chemical reaction. In everyday language, we use the word catalyst to describe something that causes an important event to happen. So what were the catalysts that prompted God to act on our behalf? What prompted Him to affect our rescue? Well, Paul tells us primarily it was God's own character. Notice verse 4 says, but God being. But God being. It was because of the character of God that He moved to act. It was because of what is true about Him that He moved to rescue us. But Paul doesn't leave it general. Notice he gets very specific about what these catalysts were. There's several of them. The first catalyst is God's mercy. But God being rich in mercy. Now there are very two very similar biblical words that people often confuse. They're the words grace and mercy. Let me see if I can differentiate them for you because they both appear in this passage. Grace is God's goodness to those who deserve only His punishment. Grace is when God does good to those who deserve exactly the opposite. That's grace. You'll notice down in verse 5, there's a parenthetical statement in which he says, by grace you have been saved. You see, grace too stands behind God's acting on our behalf. But I'm going to wait to look at grace in more detail when Paul does down in verses 8 and 9. So for now, we'll move on from the word grace to the word mercy. This other word, mercy. If grace is God's goodness to those who deserve the punishment of God, then mercy is God's goodness directed at misery and distress. It is God's goodness to those who find themselves in misery and difficulty and trouble and distress. It's God's goodness directed at the misery of His creatures. God's disposition is to relieve the misery of His fallen creatures. Louis Burkhoff, in his systematic theology, defines mercy like this. He says, It is the goodness of God shown to those who are in misery or distress, irrespective of their deserts. It's not that they deserve it, but God's great heart is moved. A.W. Tozer, in his excellent little book, The Knowledge of the Holy, defines mercy like this. It is an infinite and inexhaustible energy within the divine nature which predisposes God to be actively compassionate. An infinite, inexhaustible energy within God that causes Him to look at people who are in trouble and difficulty, who are in the midst of misery, and to be moved to act because of what he sees. God is always merciful. This is who he is. You go back to God's great self-revelation in Exodus chapter 34. You remember when Moses said, God, show me your glory. Proclaim your character before me. And what does God say? I am compassionate and gracious. The word compassionate is a Hebrew synonym for mercy. It's that idea of pity to those that are in trouble in difficulty. This is who God is. 
And he shows this attribute toward all of his cre- creature, cre- I'm sorry, creation or creatures. In Psalm 145, verse 9, it says, The Lord is good to all, and his mercies are over all his works. He even shows this mercy, this concern for those in misery toward those who don't trust him. This is our God. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus says, God himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. He says, God shows mercy to wicked, ungrateful, evil men. He looks on those who find themselves in a desperate situation and his heart is moved to respond. Now obviously, in the case of unbelievers, his mercy involves only the needs of this life. But God especially shows mercy toward believers. How does that mercy express itself? Well, sometimes it expresses itself in deliverance from physically difficult circumstances. Trials of various kinds. God looks at us in our trouble, in our misery, and his heart is moved and he acts to relieve it. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 27, Paul writes of one of his co-workers, Indeed, he was sick to the point of death, had an illness that almost took his life, but God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. Sometimes God intervenes because his great heart is moved with our misery for physical deliverance. But for those whom God has chosen as his own, his mercy not only expresses itself in physical deliverance, but in eternal salvation from sin and its penalty. Paul, in 1 Timothy 1, as he recounts his own testimony, listen to how he describes it. He says, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience. But it's not only true for Paul, it's true for you as well. If you're a Christian here this morning, part of the reason you're a Christian is because of God's mercy. Titus chapter 3 verse 5 says, God saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done, but according to his mercy. God looked at us in our misery of sin, in the desperate situation in which we found ourselves, and his great heart was moved, and he reached to save us. A.W. Tozer says, When through the blood of the everlasting covenant, we children of the shadows reach at last our home in the light, we shall have a thousand strings to our harps, but the sweetest may well be the one tuned to sound forth most perfectly the mercy of God. Listen, Christian, if you're here this morning and you're in Christ, it's because there is something in God that was moved when He saw you in the misery of your sin and He acted to rescue you. The second catalyst that prompted God to act on our behalf was not only His mercy, but also God's love. Notice verse 4 again. But God being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us. Scripture makes it clear that love is part of God's unchanging character. 
Three times, Scripture tells us that God is something. It tells us that God is light. It tells us that God is spirit. And in 1 John 4, 8, the Apostle John writes that God is love. What John is saying is that love is an essential attribute of God. When you think of God, do you think of love? That's what John says you should. doesn't mean that God isn't also just and holy and all of those other things. But he means that when you think of God, you are to think of him as a person characterized by, known by, described by love. So what does that mean? When we say God is love, what are we saying about God? Well, this is the wonderful Greek word agape, and we've talked about that before, but let me give you my definition. I think I've given it to you before. When you take all the biblical data and put it together, you, you end up with a definition something like this. Love is the unselfish, self-sacrificing desire to seek the highest good of the cherished person, regardless of their worthiness or their response to it. Let me give that to you again. Love is the unselfish, self-sacrificing desire to seek the highest good of the cherished person, regardless of their worthiness of it or their response to it. Think about that in reference to God for a moment. God sacrificially, unselfishly desires to seek your highest good. Regardless of whether you deserve it, you don't. And regardless of your response to it, initially your response was to be a rebel against Him. And yet that is the love of God. By the way, there are people I know who come to embrace God's sovereignty and salvation, and they begin to say that God doesn't love all men, that He only loves the elect. I have to disagree with that. I think the Scripture is absolutely clear that God loves all men. Let me give you just a couple of examples. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 43, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, Love your enemies. That's a command to us. Why? So that you may be sons of your Father. What's the clear implication? God loves His enemies. And in the same way that God loves His enemies, you are to love yours. In Mark chapter 10, verse 21, you remember the story of the rich young ruler. He comes to Christ and he says, Lord, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says to him, well, you know what the commandments are. And he recites them and he says, well, keep the commandments and you'll have eternal life. Now, Jesus wasn't saying a man could earn his salvation by keeping the commandments. Jesus was trying to show this young man that he had not kept the commandments. But unfortunately, he misunderstood the commandments, and because he had kept them externally, assumed that he had kept them, and his response was, well, all those have I kept from my youth up. What else do I need to do? And Jesus, to illustrate to him that in fact he had a greedy heart that showed he hadn't kept the commandments, said... Go sell everything you have and come and follow me. Jesus put his finger on the one issue in this man's life that loomed the largest. And the scripture says, the young man went away sorrowing because he had much wealth. As far as we know, that young man never comes to faith in Jesus Christ. He walks away from Christ because he loved his money. 
And yet the text says when he walks up to Christ, Jesus saw him and loved him. And of course, John 3.16, I'm familiar with all the arguments of those who would oppose my view and how they try to make this passage say other things, but it clearly states, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So God loves all men, but God loves those whom he has chosen to be his own with a special, different love. Just one place that's illustrated is 1 John 3, verse 1. The Apostle John says, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us. Here's a love that distinguishes us from what he does for others. And what is it that he's shown us in this great love? That we would be called children of God. The greatest demonstration of the love of God was sacrificing his son to make rebels his children. This love that he had for us moved God to do more than merely make our salvation possible. It moved him to actually rescue us. And this is throughout the scripture. A couple of my favorites, Romans chapter 5, you're familiar with, you've probably memorized it if you've been a Christian any time at all. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When our response to him was not one of obedience, was not one of love, while we were still in the habit of sin and rebellion against him, Christ died for us, that is, in our place, as our substitute. God, in Christ, rescuing us. And the cost was his own son. In Titus chapter 3, the Apostle Paul makes this same point. Titus chapter 3, verse 4, he says, When the kindness of God our Savior and love for mankind appeared, he rescued us. Listen, if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, it's because of the love of God. It's because God loved you and sought you out. It's because he sought your highest good. In 1 John chapter 4 is probably the most famous passage of all. 1 John chapter 4 verse 10. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us. And as a result of that love, He sent His Son. And He sent His Son for one particular purpose, to be the propitiation for our sins. That's a big word, but it's a, it's a wonderful word. Propitiation simply means the satisfaction of God's wrath. So God sent His own unique Son to be the satisfaction of our wrath because He loved us. The satisfaction of His wrath, rather, that we deserved because He loved us. It was God's love for us that caused Him to act in our rescue. Ephesians 2.4, God because of His great love with which He loved us. By the way, I love the last part of that. His great love with which He loved us. Not only is our God a God of love, but that seems kind of impersonal and distant, doesn't it? But Paul finishes verse 4 by making it very personal. His great love with which He loved us. Let me reconstruct that dependent clause into an independent one to make it clearer. Here's what Paul says. God 
loved us with a great love. That's what it says. God loved us with a great love. It's very personal, us. Individually, you. God knew you by name, and He sent His Son to die for you if you're in Christ or if you're willing to come to Christ. Very personal. It's a great love, he says. I love what William Hendrickson, the great commentator, has to say about this. He says, this love of God is so great that it defies all definition. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part 11 of This Is Your Life. Join us next time for part 12 as Tom once again takes us to God's Word. Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth. Thank you.